Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and did not necessarily represent those of AMC Networks and its employees. You've got old blood here on the door handle as you exit this house. Now, who do we know as old blood? Not Nancy Hasem, she's AB. Not Derek, he's A. Not Elizabeth Hasem, she's B. Ian Suring has old blood. The prosecutor hammered at this again and again in his closing argument. Yenzi has type O blood. You've got type O blood found at the crime scene. Voila, he's the murderer. None of the victims had type O blood and Suring did, therefore he must be the killer. That was their argument. So they could say, looky here, there's type O blood at the crime scene and Jens Suring has type O blood. And nobody else involved in the crime has type O blood. The victims had A and AB, and Elizabeth Hasen, my co-defendant, had type B. So the prosecutor told the jury in his closing arguments 26 times, 26 times, that there was type O blood at the crime scene, and that had to be mine because it couldn't have been anybody else's. When Derek and Nancy Hasem were brutally murdered in their home in Lynchburg, Virginia, nearly decapitated in a gruesome struggle that left blood smeared on the walls and floor of three different rooms, the lab technicians were able to identify four distinct blood types, two of which matched Derek and Nancy Hasem, and two of which happened to match the main suspects, the daughter Elizabeth Hasem, who is type B, and her boyfriend, Jens Suring, who is type O. Like a gift to the prosecution, that blood match led to Elizabeth pleading guilty to accessory to murder and testifying against Jens, who pled not guilty. It also led to his ultimate conviction for the murders. They've both been in prison for the last 33 years. Last episode, we looked at these murders from the view of 1985, and how the investigation focused on Elizabeth Hasem and Jens Suring, who fled the country rather than submit forensic samples. But the view from today looks very different, and it brings to light a second crime beyond the brutal knife killings of the Hasems. And this crime hits me even closer to home. This is the truth about true crime. I'm Amanda Knox. This season, I'm looking into the Sundance Now docuseries, Killing for Love, a case that has haunting and almost unbelievable echoes of my own. The brutality of the killing, 
the police screw-ups, the young lovers as suspects, the questionable forensics, and the media spectacle. She was cast as the bewitching succubus. He was her love slave. It all gave me deja vu. And it made me very uncomfortable, for I know what it's like to be slapped with the bullshit label of femme fatale. And I know what it's like to be shouting your innocence on deaf ears, as Jens Suring has been for the last three decades. Like little papers in this huge case. Jens and Elizabeth were suspected by the Bedford County investigators for a number of reasons. The miles on their rental car didn't add up with their story of driving to D.C. for the weekend. Their diaries and letters contained fantasies about Elizabeth's parents dying. And of course, they fled to Europe when Jens was asked to submit forensic samples. There was a lot to point to their guilt, but there was also plenty of reason to doubt Elizabeth's story, the story the prosecution bought, that Jens had killed her parents while she remained in D.C. Jens barely knew the Haysoms. He knew the details of the D.C. trip more accurately than Elizabeth, and his fingerprints were not found at the crime scene. But there was also plenty of blood to test, and back in 1990, the Bedford County forensic scientists were only able to distinguish blood groups, which was bad news for Jens Suring. There was type O blood at the scene, and he was the only suspect with type O blood. But as Jens's attorney, Gail Marshall, points out. Yes, but so do 45% of the people in, here, in the country have it. That does not tie him to the crime scene. Even so, it was enough to convict Jens. As journalist Bill Sizemore explains, DNA science was in its infancy. It was not used in, in trials. And years later, when DNA science had advanced to such a point that, uh, that this could be done, those samples were DNA tested. Like all crime scene evidence, even DNA is subject to interpretation. That was a huge battle in my case. In my first trial, the prosecution's forensic experts came up with very different results on the key evidence than our experts. And Raffaele and I were convicted because the judge and jury decided to believe one set of experts over the other. It wasn't until two years later, when the appellate court appointed independent forensic experts, that the discrepancy was worked out. All this is to say that it's not always quite as simple as the DNA says he did it. So in looking into the DNA in this case, I called up DNA expert Tom McClintock at Liberty University, just outside of Lynchburg in Bedford County. There was a lot of blood found at the crime scene, on the door handle, in the doorway, on the floor surrounding the bodies, and even smeared on the walls. I asked Professor McClintock to walk me through the blood samples that supposedly linked Jens to the crime scene. Let's start with, there was a stain that was from the threshold of the door. So for the one stain from the threshold, it turns out that was a single source 
male DNA component. The blood type was AB, and Yin Soaring is an O. So it's clearly not him from a serological standpoint. It was impossible for him to give that genetic material, even if he wanted to, even if you said, I will pay you. He's just not genetically capable of doing that. There's another stain. It's called 6-FE. It was a single source sample, meaning not a mixture. Blood type O, so that was similar to Yin Soaring. And then the DNA test that showed up, and I'm just double checking here, um, was not consistent with Mr. Uh, Soaring. So that's another unknown male profile. While Professor McClintock got deep into the science of this with me, going into what differentiates a partial from a full profile, and how the DNA profiles must be compared at numerous different sites, or loci, I kept thinking, another unknown male? That's a big deal. It means that even if Jens was somehow involved in this crime, he wasn't alone. There's another stain from the screen door, single source, typo blood, male, and the profile, again, does not match in soaring. There is a stain that was found on the Formica countertop, which was a single source, and uh, it was uh, AB blood type, which Ian Soren's knows, so it's not him. It was a male, and the DNA profile, again, was much different than Yin Soaring's. I want to know from you and your expert opinion, what does this mean? There's no evidence that suggests, implies, incriminates Yin Soaring's biological material being there. There's no evidentiary samples that show that his biological material, his DNA or blood was present. And how possible would it have been for Jens to participate in this murder and not leave any DNA there? Well, you know, um, as opposing counsel's expert would say, it's possible, um, highly unlikely. If you're, I would think, involved in such a heinous crime, and if you've seen the crime scene photos, you know, there is a lot of blood, pools of blood. We're not necessarily talking, you know, high-velocity blood spatter. It's, it's a lot of blood. So it looks like there was possibly some struggles. Um, and just from uh, the wounds themselves, there's a lot of blood. So you and I and everyone at different levels shed from 30,000 to 40,000 skin cells per hour. So you're sloughing off skin cells from your body constantly. So hold that thought. Think about the Peanuts cartoon. You remember that? Sure. Okay, with Lucy and Charlie Brown. There is a character named Pigpen. And yeah, everywhere Pigpen went, there was this ball of dirt that followed him, dust. I believe if we could see those thirty to 40,000 cells that we are shedding per hour, we would look like Pigpen. 
Oh, great. (laughs) (laughs) Not calling you dirty, but you're shedding material constantly. So to answer your question, sure, there's a possibility that he could have left samples. Maybe we didn't just simply find those samples, but what we have at hand, which is the best we can do at this point, there's nothing that suggests that he was at the crime scene. So as it stands now, almost everyone who knows a thing about this case, with the notable exceptions of Detective Ricky Gardner and Prosecutor Jim Updike, agrees on how to interpret this DNA result. There's no one that's reviewed it that doesn't agree to this. It is not in Soren. Jens's DNA has not been detected in that crime scene. Now it's been shown in study after study that Jens's DNA is not present at the crime scene. And, you know, there's this saying that uh, uh, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, but there's nothing. That blood could not be Jens Soren's blood, okay? Not possible. There is nothing connecting him physically to the scene. So you're starting all over. The last thing any investigator or prosecutor wants to hear is start over. Nobody wants to be wrong or to feel like their effort has been a waste. But when the DNA testing tells us that Jens Suring left no biological traces at the crime scene, that it would be astronomically unlikely for him to have participated in that bloody struggle without leaving any traces of himself, and that two other males, still unidentified, did leave blood at the crime scene? What honest choice do you have but to start over? The lack of biological traces doesn't prove Yen's innocent, but it does invalidate the cornerstone of his conviction. Realizing this fact, I was hit even harder by the parallels to my own case. I, too, was convicted based on forensic evidence that later proved faulty. And when I was definitively acquitted by the Italian Supreme Court, they cited a complete lack of biological traces connecting me to the crime scene. The number of echoes in this story to my own case was already unreal. The knife killing in a small town, the young lovers, one of them a foreign exchange student, the myth of the femme fatale. But the DNA makes it even crazier. It means that this story, like my own, has at its heart a gross miscarriage of justice. The state of Virginia says the only crime here was the Haysom's double homicide that Jens is serving two life sentences for. Jens disagrees. So does the evidence. The killing of Derek and Nancy Hasem was a brutal crime that happened in a single turbulent moment on March 30th, 1985. But there's another crime here, one spawned by those murders. And unlike those murders, it hasn't been confined to a single moment. 33 years ago, an 18-year-old German exchange student at UVA was kidnapped. His captors locked him in a room and tried to kill him but they couldn't keep him quiet. He's been writing letters, books, making phone calls, and he's made a lot of friends. His name is Jens Suring, his kidnapper, the state of Virginia. 
It may seem strange to talk about a wrongful conviction as a crime, but believe me, from the inside, it feels like one. When the evidence shows that Jens never should have been convicted in the first place, when it shows that he ought to be released immediately, or at the very least granted a new trial, what else can you call his continued imprisonment but a crime by the state authorities whose actions keep him locked up? It's a special sort of crime, because right now, as I speak, as you listen, this crime is still being committed against Jens Suring. As one of his advocates, Martin Sheen, wrote in an op-ed to the Richmond Times-Dispatch, Jen Soaring remains in a prison cell after three decades, and we are left to wonder why. Justice so long delayed is no justice at all. To date, Jens has exhausted all his appeals, and he's been denied parole again and again. How many parole hearings have you organized for him? You know, I, I did not go back and try to... Um, count all of them, but it's been many, many. For the record, he's been denied parole 14 times in a row. Convicted murderers aren't often paroled, but it does happen. The Virginia Parole Board recently voted to release three men convicted in the 1994 Newport News murder case. So why not Jens? Parole boards look at a lot of factors when weighing an inmate's potential release. The prisoner's behavioral record is a big part of it. Most inmates can't walk through the chaos of prison without getting at least a couple infraction points. So, what's Jens been like as a prisoner? He has had a perfect record in prison, which is almost impossible to imagine how that's even doable. That's Jason Flom, one of the founding board members of the Innocence Project. When I talk to people about his case who are in a position to do something about it, I say, you know, he's, he's never so much as spilled his coffee, right? It's like he just is, he's no threat to anyone mm-hmm. on the inside, on the outside. You know, if he, when he does get out, I, I think the worst thing that could possibly happen is he may fall asleep in a library from reading <laughs> too much. You know what I mean? Like, and he has such an extraordinary intellect and personality I mean, he's already written seven or nine books or whatever that have been published widely, some of them. Multiple languages. Know, <laughs> multiple languages. He's a Tai Chi teacher. He's a meditation teacher. It's like, wow. Hi, listeners. Amanda Knox here, host of the podcast, The Truth About True Crime. If you're a fan of our show, be sure to check out season two of Sundance Now's original audio drama, Exeter now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Picking up where season one left off, Detective Colleen Clayton, played by Jean Triplehorn, and her partner Pruitt, played by Ray McKinnon, follow a trail of confessions that lead them back to Exeter's most infamous unsolved crime, the brutal murder of two teenage lovers. Colleen and Pruitt must fight to maintain order as the renewed investigation rips open eight years' worth of old wounds in their small southern town. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. The other main factor a parole board looks at is the effect on the local community of releasing an inmate. 
Will they be a danger to society? In Jens's case, not only does he have a perfect record of nonviolence, he's not even going to re-enter into Virginia society. If released, he would head right back to Germany. That could even be a condition of his parole if the board wanted. And Germany wants him back. German diplomats have even showed up in Virginia at his parole hearings. If released, he'd never return to Virginia. But it keeps not happening. By the time I was ready to hop on the phone with Jens, he'd just been denied parole yet again. I felt sympathy for him and was convinced of his innocence. But I also had no idea if I'd like the guy. You can be innocent and still be a jerk or have a twisted or heartless view of the justice system. In his book, A Far, Far Better Thing, he too talked about Elizabeth as a bewitching figure. And having been thrown in prison from that kind of talk, that made me skeptical of his view on this whole tragedy and whether or not we'd see eye to eye on how and why he was wrongly convicted or what it meant for himself or for society. So I went into this conversation with trepidation, but also with hope, because it's not often that two wrongly convicted people get to meet each other, even if we're separated by prison walls. As of now, there's no other option. Every interview Jens has given for the past 33 years, including his filmed interview in the Sundance Now docuseries, Killing for Love, has been conducted from prison. Okay, here we go. Hello, this is a prepaid debit call from... Jens Zöring. An inmate at Virginia Department of Corrections, Buckingham Correctional. To accept this call, press zero. To refuse, this call is from a correction facility and is subject to monitoring and recording. Thank you for using GTL. Hey there. Hello. <laughs> just to let you know, um, we're recording, but in reality, it's just you and me. And right. um, and can you hear me That's well? Sixty-three guys in my pod. <laughs> oh god. Okay, yeah. you, you, me, and sixty-three guys. <laughs> yeah, the, the Bloods and the Crips and the Aryan Brothers, and no MS-13 today, but we can call them in later. Oh, what a party! Um, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the whole gang's here. Uh, gang. All right, uh, and um, you know we get interrupted every twenty minutes. So you, just so you know, you know the little my girlfriend comes on and lets us know. Jens makes enough phone calls and has been interrupted by the robo voice of the prison system so many times. He now calls it his girlfriend. It's a rather dark joke. The only real girlfriend he's ever had, the only woman he ever loved, led him to prison. But when you're locked up for a murder you didn't commit, and it seems like the world's gone crazy, it's hard not to develop a killer's sense of humor. He was a naive kid, barely an adult, when the justice system closed in on him. And not without cause. Jens is the first to admit that he made some very bad mistakes three decades ago. He didn't come clean about what he knew right away, and he certainly didn't offer to help the authorities, like I did in Perugia. 
he is also guilty of helping cover up the murders. And for an innocent person, he acted rashly, guiltily, when he fled to Europe. And all those mistakes lead back to his infatuation with Elizabeth Haysom. They were both freshman honor students at UVA, though Elizabeth was two years older than Jens and far more worldly. Compared to square and academic Jens, Elizabeth was an alluring rebel who had experimented with drugs and bisexuality. It took a few encounters before they fell into each other's orbits, but once they did, they fell hard. Like Raffaele and me, like a lot of young people who fall in love for the first time, they became two bright stars circling each other at the center of their own little self-contained universe. But after Derek and Nancy Hasem were murdered, Jens and Elizabeth were both sucked into the black hole of that monstrous crime. In their journals and letters, they called it Our Little Nasty. Once Jens was accused, it seemed as though Jens could do nothing right. It's hard to be mercilessly judged, scrutinized from every angle in the worst possible light, at such an awkward age, when you're technically an adult, but still really a kid. I would know. Jens and I were both A students, nerds. I know that made me unprepared for the harsh world of criminal justice. Do you mind if I bring you back to 18-year-old you? I know that that's... Mm -hmm, uh, I can sympathize with having to go back to 18-year-old you because I often have to go back to 20-year-old me when talking about my own case. And it's, you know, an awkward time of life. I look back on that time with a little bit of embarrassment, not because I was a bad kid, but because I was 20 and undercooked. And I know that, you know, you were a little bit of a fish out of water in Bedford, but like, what were you like at 18? Well, (laughs) um, There's a difference between how I saw myself at 18 and how I now understand myself. I was intellectually very precocious and I was emotionally very underdeveloped. Um, I was emotionally very immature. When I went to UVA, I went there on an academic scholarship, which back then was a very great honor and extremely rare. When I met Elizabeth Hasem, who was two and a half years older than me and very experienced, very mature. Um, I was completely unprepared for that and did not realize how unprepared I was. I thought, you know, I thought I could just handle it by being smart again. (laughs) And I just really couldn't. Um, I just really, really couldn't. That relationship ruined his life. But in the moment... There was a sort of a three-month period between when we started dating and when she killed her parents. (laughs) That was probably the only really happy part of my life. In case you're wondering, I don't hop on the phone with incarcerated innocents every day or meet someone who's been through what I've been through, whose cries for help 
are like echoes of my own. At the same time, it's not like I know Jens and what he's been through. He's been in the system since before I was born. You were released after four years in prison. There was an opportunity for the American justice system to release me after four years, too. <laughs> but they didn't do it. You know, they didn't do it then, and they haven't done it since, and they still haven't done it. So it's, it's, I know it's hard for you to hear, because you went through an awful experience being wrongfully convicted. That was not your fault. And you were victimized by the original cops and the original trial in Italy. There's no question. Mm -hmm. So it's hard for you to hear from me that I think you're lucky, but, you know, hey, I, it's true. I wish they would have put me on trial in Italy. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been Bedford, it would have been better than Bedford County. Oh, Jens, I'm, it's Sorry. not, it's, it's not hard for me to hear because it's the plain truth. I mean, when I look at you I see the version of myself that didn't get away, that, that wasn't freed, that didn't have, that wasn't vindicated. And you're right. I'm the lucky one. Um, just one moment. I have to wave, wave at my toilet paper connection. It's a prison thing. Where I am, you know, sufficient toilet paper um, you know, costs a pack of microwave popcorn. It's jarring to be deep into an emotional conversation and then hear something like that. But that's Jens's reality. It's one of the strangest parts of being wrongly convicted, struggling against the gigantic task of securing your freedom on the one hand, while also having to fight for small bits of comfort on the other. Getting out of prison matters, but until he's free, toilet paper matters just as much if not more. In Perugia, I learned pretty quickly that cigarettes and juice boxes are currency, and I bartered my ability to read and write for goodwill. It's like running an obstacle course and doing math in your head for your life. The small comforts keep you sane. The existential fight? Well, like I said to Jens, the slaughter of Yen Suring day by day continues, and no one's stopping it. That's, I think, what a lot of people fail to appreciate about wrongful convictions, that they could be stopped, that they could be righted, and that the crime against you is still happening. Right. Exactly. I survived four years of wrongful imprisonment. I took it day by day. I tried to make the best life I could out of what I had been given. But more often than not, I felt like I was half living, like I was waiting to live again. So how does Jens stay optimistic? Everybody told me I had no chance of escaping the death penalty, none. And I was the only one who say, well, let's try it anyway. <laughs> and and then we won. And my lawyers were the most shocked <laughs> among everybody. Nobody thought we had a chance. And so what I came away with from all that is that no matter how hopeless a situation is, when everybody's telling you you have no chance 
you definitely will be executed in the electric chair. It's going to be a horrible death, and there's no way for you to escape it. The only thing I actually said was, well, no, let's try. You know, I just refused to give up and refused to lay down and roll over and actually be dead. And I won. Sometimes he sounds like that, hopeful. But can you really maintain that attitude for as long as Jens has been in prison? Four years is a long time. There's no question four years is a long time to spend in prison. Um, but I've spent 33 years in here. And, and mm-hmm. that's a different beast. Uh, it just is. Yeah. That changes you. <laughs> and, you know, um, changed me. How? I think I've never really stopped feeling like my life could end any second. And just, you know, I'm, it's virtually, you know, it's over with already. So, you know, every extra minute is actually a surprise. After everything I've been through for the last 32 years, 8 months, and 25 days, it's been really, really hard. It's been my entire life, all of my 20s, all of my 30s, all of my 40s, and it's been pure misery. And if I had known back then what I'd be facing, what I'd have to go through, um, I'm pretty sure even back then I would have said, nah, let's skip all that. Just go ahead and execute me. Yeah, that's the way I feel about it now. That's what's at stake here. But how did it get this bad? It's not an easy question to answer. Coming into this story, I was shocked at the parallels to my own case. And I was expecting a whodunit. Who killed Derek and Nancy Hasem? But there's another mystery here. Why is Jens Suring in prison? And why won't they let him out? In the ongoing crime of Jens's kidnapping, we're going to look at all the quote-unquote suspects. I'm using that term metaphorically. In the coming episodes, We'll examine each party who bears responsibility for this crime of Jens's wrongful conviction. That means looking at Bedford County, at Elizabeth, at Jens himself, and at ourselves and the part we play in implementing a system that sometimes fails catastrophically. It's important to remember that at the center of these failures is a human being. It's crushingly apparent in the Sundance Now docuseries, Killing for Love, that there's no one inside the prison to hold Jens's hand through this. But there are people on the outside, people who've witnessed Jens grow and mature from the naive kid he was and have become personally invested in his living nightmare. 
After nearly 30 years of denied appeals and broken promises of release and return to Germany, Jens's case took a positive and very dramatic turn when DNA tests concluded that blood at the crime scene, long believed to be Jens, was in fact left by another man leading his attorney, Stephen Rosenfeld, to file a pardon petition in August 2016. That was Martin Sheen, and he's talking about Jens's last remaining hope, a pardon petition to the governor of Virginia. Next time, on The Truth About True Crime, a special bonus episode where I have the pleasure of speaking with Martin Sheen, one of Jens's most ardent supporters, about advocating for Jens's release what it means to throw out that lifeline, and what it means for Jens to grab hold of it. In the meantime, be sure to check out the Sundance Now docuseries, Killing for Love, at SundanceNow.com. And please subscribe, rate, review, and share the truth about true crime as you please. <laughs>